Freedom of speech. Fundamental rights. Freedom of uh, conscience. Academic freedom. Freedom of press. And the right to listen. You're listening to So To Speak, the free speech podcast brought to you by FIRE, the foundation for individual rights in education. Okay, very good. Welcome back to So To Speak, the free speech podcast, where every other week we take an uncensored look at the world of free expression through personal stories and candid conversations. As always, I am your host, Nico Perino, and I'm very excited for today's conversation because I get to talk to one of my friends, Luke Morgan. He is a he is a recent graduate from uh, Duke University School of Law and was on the student newspaper with me at Indiana University, the Indiana Daily Student. We were on the editorial board together where we'd often butt heads on various issues, but often had a kind of weird bipartisan alliance. So Luke, welcome onto the show. Thank you, Nico. Thank you for having me. Yeah, I was just remembering our, our kind of strange cross-ideological alliance and uh, the joys of having a 10 a.m. Sunday deadline to turn your column in. Yeah, right. <laughs> and for our listeners, I, I, I guess it's probably important to point out, I came from a very libertarian perspective in, uh, in college, in my columns in particular, but also when we were discussing the editorials that the newspaper would write for any given day. Uh, and you came from more of a liberal progressive outlook. And uh, the funny thing about being a libertarian or always being a libertarian is uh, you sometimes agree with conservatives, you sometimes agree with progressives. And there was even, I remember like a a pretty, you know, a pretty red or a pretty communist guy on our editorial board who I sometimes agreed with, as well. But um, you know, it was it was a fun time, and I don't I don't know how much of that they get at the Indiana Daily Student these days. Unfortunately, I don't read it as much as I used to. But that was uh, really a nice opportunity for me to talk with people who I disagreed with and really hone my ideas and, in some cases, change my ideas, which is I, I totally agree which is what this is all about. So Luke, I don't remember when we were at the IDS, the first amendment being a particular interest of yours. I remember obviously, um, you had an interest in, in press issues cause you worked for a student press. Um, mm-hmm. but when did first amendment issues start to, um, interest you in particular, you've written three articles, um, three law, you've published two law review articles, one, in uh, Hastings Constitutional Law Quarterly, and the where's the where's your gun one published? Uh, that was my student note in Duke Law Journal. Okay, very good. Well, I'll link to it in the show notes, and then you have one on the Free Press as well uh, coming out that's still in in a, a working draft formulation. But when did you start getting interested in these issues? Yeah, it's actually interesting. I think you're right that it wasn't a big focus of mine in undergrad, but my first kind of exposure and, and where I first became interested in constitutional law really was um, actually my senior year of high school uh, in debate uh, at a national tournament that uh, we had my senior year of high school. The topic was uh, in the United States, freedom of religion has wrongly evolved into freedom from religion. And, um, you know, it's a, it's a big national tournament, 200, 250 teams, um, and then it breaks to the top 32. Uh, and, and once you're at that point, it takes, obviously, 31 rounds to, to get to the 
to to the champion. So you're you're debating thirty one times the same motion? No, sorry. So it's like it's top thirty two. So to get to top sixteen, you have to do sixteen rounds gotcha. plus eight rounds for the next. So there's thirty two or thirty one total rounds to get to a champion. And out of those thirty one elimination rounds, the team arguing against the topic saying that it hadn't wrongly evolved into freedom from religion won 29 rounds. Um, and the team uh, arguing for the topic won two rounds. Uh, and that team was, both of those rounds were myself and my partner. And we actually won them by arguing that the Bill of Rights should have never been incorporated against the states uh, under the 14th Amendment, which nobody really knew anything to do at the time, you know, that's not something that I think a lot of people had prepared for on topic. Uh-huh. So you won because the other sides, in, in a sense, hadn't really considered your perspective yet. Yeah, it was, we, we kind of approached it orthogonally um, instead of arguing necessarily about the substance. But it, the point being, that was my first introduction to the First Amendment and to constitutional law generally, and I sort of really dived in at that point, and that was a big inspiration for me. Um, and then uh, when, I, when I get to law school in 2016-2017, I actually become a, a research assistant for professors Joseph Boker and Daryl Miller, who were working at the time on a book on the Second Amendment. And so I kind of started my my DLJ piece on guns and free speech as a Second Amendment project that uh, picked up some First Amendment stuff, but I think my my passion is primarily in the First Amendment area. Yeah, so let's you've got three articles here, and I'd like to dis- to start with the gun one because that I believe is your first one, and is also perhaps the most. Uh, it, it's a topic that a lot of people are talking about these days. And you said you started at law school in 2016, correct? Yeah. It was the next year, 2017, that, of course, the events occurred in Charlottesville, where white nationalists marched on Lee Park to um, protest against the removal of the Robert E. Lee statue there. They had arrived the evening before. Uh, This is in August, and I think they arrived August 11th. The protest was set to take place on August 12th, August 11th. That Friday, they uh, marched through University of Virginia's campus campus with uh, lighted tiki torches. And uh, then the next day they arrive, uh, many of them looking like an armed militia. Uh, there was where there were some on the other side of the protest protesting against them, who also arrived armed, and it looked like an occupied city. Charlottesville did at that right. point, and uh, we all remember the outcome. Um, there were a couple of outcomes. A number of people died. There was Heather Heyer, of course, who was struck by an automobile and murdered. Uh, but there were also, I believe, two deaths um, from police officers who died in a, in a helicopter crash. And there was a big discussion at that time about the guns that were so clearly on display at that protest. Now, I live in Virginia, and uh, in Virginia, you're allowed to um, open carry and I believe conceal carry a weapon. Um, and then the que- so the question became, are you allowed to do that in the course of demonstrating? Like, does, does the First Amendment protect that right? Um, and if not, um, in states where you have a statutory right to carry, can they create prohibitions 
in the course of you exercising your First Amendment right. So can if you can, can carry normally through the streets, can they stop you from carrying um, in the course of a protest? The idea being that the carrying of the weapon might be symbolic speech. It might be expressive conduct. So your article tackles this, essentially arguing that there is no First Amendment right to um, carry a firearm as expressive conduct, correct? Correct. Um, the kind of main point of the First Amendment part of the article is that, you know, we have a Second Amendment. Let's just let's just analyze stuff about carrying guns under the Second Amendment and, and you know, keep keep things kind of in a in a sensible order or, you know. Yeah. And and what is this? What is the Second Amendment? So insofar as the court, the Supreme Court has said anything about it, what does it protect right now? So right now, uh, the Second Amendment, the, the court hasn't said too much about what the Second Amendment right protects. You have District of Columbia versus Heller, which says that the Second Amendment um, is about self-defense and therefore it protects at a minimum uh, the right to bear uh, a handgun for self-defense purposes in the home. Um, and then you have uh, McDonald versus Chicago um, which says that uh, that applies to the states as well, because of course DC versus Heller is in DC, so it's a federal issue. Uh, and then you have a, a kind of strange little opinion called Caetano versus Massachusetts, where um, the Massachusetts Supreme Court said that the Second Amendment right extend to stun guns, I believe, because they weren't around at the time of the founding. And the court, I think, without saying necessarily that it does extend to stun guns says that that's not um, good good reasoning, that it's not limited to guns that existed at the time the Second Amendment was authored. Uh, and so that's the universe of, of modern Second Amendment cases, post-Heller cases. Um, and then you have the New York State uh, Rifle and Pistol Association case, which just came out. And what did that case say? Did it have, get, did it, answer any questions that might come to bear on this First Amendment question? So, so that's a big question. Decision isn't out yet, but um, the, the question is whether or not it was mooted um, because uh, the city repealed the law and then uh, the state passed a law saying that the city could never pass that kind of law again. Um, so it was a law that more broadly prohibited guns uh, I think it was like a transportation of guns outside the home issue. Um, and it was it was a fairly restrictive kind of, this is what you see with second litigation is that a lot of these cases, Heller and McDonald were both very much outlier laws that were struck down by the court. And, and this was kind of similar, but um, so yeah, while the, while the litigation was ongoing, the law was repealed and then preempted at the state level. So it looks like it may be the majority of the court is going to say that it's moot, um, but uh, there was some resistance to that, so that's the big question there. Gotcha. So now let's talk about. I want. I want to kind of approach this systematically. Let's talk about the history of the use of guns in political protests, because Charlottesville and the white nationalists, the militia groups who arrived there, were not the first type of political demonstrators or first kind of political demonstrators to use guns in protests. This kind of goes back over a century, 
essentially. And you cover some of this history in your article. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah. So one of the things I talk about in my article that I, I kind of found a, a fascinating juxtaposition is that uh, one of the main Second Amendment, one of the only Second Amendment cases before Heller uh, is this case called Illinois versus Presser, or Presser versus Illinois, um, which is comes up from the Illinois Supreme Court, and it's about socialist German immigrants in Chicago. So you have, um, after the Civil War, basically, you have a wave of European labor comes to the United States, and uh, industrialization is happening. And there are, I, I think everyone knows, kind of just absolutely brutal working conditions. And this is where, kind of in this milieu, is where the, the progressive movement gets started. Um, and it's where the unionization movement gets started. And um, as, as workers are kind of militating for better working conditions, uh, the National Guards start to be created. And at the time, these National Guards were financed by the industrialists and the businessmen. And, and there was a pretty over cooperation between the government of the United States and the military of the United States and the wealthy industrialists to shut down these unions. Um, and the United States as a whole has um, an extremely kind of violent labor history. And a lot of it happened at this time. Um, I, I cite one source in the article that says that United States has the most violent labor history um, in the Western world other than Russia. And I hmm. actually think that that source was counting the Russian Revolution um, as <laughs> in, in Russia's column. So I think excluding that, we might be number one. But there was violence on both sides. Um, you have uh, a lot of people who were unionizing uh, were attacked, and, and they fought back. And so... Um, Herman Presser is uh, a German socialist immigrant in Chicago, and he forms, not him, but uh, he and his compatriots form a group uh, called, I don't want to pronounce the German, but it was called the uh, Education and Defense Association, and it had an explicit mission of protecting their right to unionize and to fight for better working conditions against the state-endorsed violence. Um, and so one of the things that they did was they marched. They armed themselves uh, with, you know, in kind of a traditional, like, late 19th century military regiment would arm themselves, um, and they marched. And Herman Presser rode at the front of the march with a cavalry sword at his side and was arrested for it. And he made First and Second Amendment arguments. And the court ultimately said that he didn't have a for First and Second Amendment argument to make to defend the right of carrying those arms, correct? Right. I guess you would say technically the court's holding was, at the time, the First and Second Amendment didn't apply against the states. Uh, yeah. it hadn't, they hadn't yet been incorporated against the states. But the court did provide some substantive feedback um, on, on this kind of exercise of the right, and it expressed a lot of skepticism. It said that the uh, exercise of the power to ban armed marches by the states is necessary to the public peace, safety, and good order, 
to deny the power would be to deny the right of the state to disperse assemblages organized for sedition and treason and the right to suppress armed mobs bent on riot and rapine. And that wasn't the first time or the only time that these sorts of groups agitating for rights have been armed. I mean, the probably the most the most well-known example are the Black Panthers who exactly uh, who all over the country and in California would carry arms. And then you also have, um, I believe it was like the De- Defense of Justice League in the South during the civil rights protests, they would carry weapons. But in these cases, it doesn't seem to me that the carrying of the weapons is expressive. It seems more defensive than expressive, would you say? Yeah, I think that there. Are, this is part of the difficulty is that there's a little bit of both. Um for example, I think in the in the case of Presser, it was very explicitly, um, I think they said that the, the purpose of the armed march was to show that Illinois militia what they could do. Um, and so that's kind of a, a, a message that I think that you hear echoed today um, in, in kind of the armed demonstrations um, that you see primarily among like more right-wing gun advocates who uh, accept the, the insurrectionist theory of the Second Amendment, that the, the reason that gun ownership is protected is to uh, check government tyranny. Mm-hmm. Um, so you, you do see people today who, who explicitly tie their, their gun possession and their open carry in public to that kind of interest. Um, I do think that for it, with a lot of the examples that you're talking about, however, um, it is it, it, there is an instrumental purpose as well, and that's one of the difficulties with First Amendment analysis of gun possession, and why I say in part we should just leave guns to the Second Amendment, where you can take a look at all of these interests, because if you're looking at it from a First Amendment perspective, how do you look at something that is both an instrument, a tool, with a specific purpose, and it also may be communicating a message. Yeah. So the, the, but the, you know, let's, let's kind of leave that question to the side right now, because it's actually a theme that runs uh, through a lot of, through uh, at least two of your articles, and, and maybe this, this other one about addiction, the, the idea that because of the emphasis the court has placed on the First Amendment, the importance that it's given to it and the, the sort of high bar that the government must reach in order to violate or to restrict any expressive rights, a lot of other rights within the Bill of Rights and or other rights within the First Amendment have been brought within the speech clause. Uh, and we'll get there at the end of this conversation because I do want to talk about uh, your article on the, a free press, which you, and you article that uh, you are, argue that the press clause of the First Amendment has kind of the, the the doctrine behind it has been truncated in a certain sense because a lot of it has been wrapped within the free speech clause. But that's a that's a common theme that runs through your articles, which is that uh, you know all these doctrines need to be developed, and they we can't just rest on one clause of one amendment to answer all the questions. But on the on the question of expressive conduct. Now the court has, the Supreme Court that is, has sort of developed a test to determine whether conduct that is expressive or has an expressive component should be 
how it should be analyzed under the First Amendment. And it says that uh, it has to meet two standards. It says the actor intends to convey a particularized message, and it is likely that those who view the conduct would understand the message. And in your article, you give one example uh, that I'd like to read out for our listeners. Uh, Richard Burgess went to a pool hall wearing a pistol and a holster on his hip, as well as a shirt which quoted the Connecticut State Constitution regarding the right to bear arms. He also had copies of a brochure examining his organization's position on the legality of carrying firearms. After refusing multiple requests to conceal his weapon, Burgess left the bar. Police had already been called and he was arrested for disorderly conduct, a charge which was later dismissed. Burgess subsequently filed a complaint against the police departments. The court held that because reasonable officers could disagree on whether it was likely that others would recognize the man's message, the officers were entitled to qualified immunity. And this is what the court says. While plaintiff's shirt makes it more likely that those who viewed his overall conduct would understand his message than if he were only openly carrying his weapon, it was unclear that his possession of the gun was a particularized message, uh, but his message regarding the Second Amendment, rather than, for example, a message um, or a weapon carried for protection. You had some brackets in there, so I kind of botched the reading of it. But uh, anyway, the outcome of that is that because people might or an officer or a citizen might not understand exactly what his message was, it could just be that he was carrying a weapon or it could be that he was sending a message about the Second Rights. It's not sure. It's not clear what message about the Second Second Amendment he might have been sending, uh, the police officers were entitled to qualified immunity. Now, the qualified immunity question is a, is a, might muddy the waters in the analysis here. But in reading that, I thought if that's not expressive, if that doesn't meet the bar for expressive conduct, I, it seems as expressive as conduct can get. Like I, I'm thinking about Morris v. Frederick here. Um, that's the case stemming out of Alaska with a group of students on a field trip holding up a sign that said "Bong hits for Jesus." And that case, in that case, the court ultimately held that their expression wasn't protected. But in the course of doing the analysis, they tried to bend over backwards to imbue that banner with some sort of message. They they constantly asked. Uh, the students' lawyers, like, what was the message that the students were trying to send with bong hits for Jesus? Was it an advocate? Was it advocacy for marijuana legalization? Was it some sort of religious message? And ultimately, I mean, the case sort of rested on the fact that the students could not articulate a message. So I'm, I'm, I'm seeing that case in which the court's bending over backwards to try and get a message out of the students. And in this case, there is some sort of message being sent, uh, but they're dismissing it. So I want to, could you talk a little bit about that case and how we should think about it? Yeah. So I think that this case, uh, I, I, you're right to pick it out. I think it's a, a very instructive example about kind of the difficulties of, of applying expressive conduct. So as you said, you have the two, the two prong test. It's, did the speaker intend to convey a message? and were people likely to understand that message. Now, there is a little bit of, a, of a, a twist on that, which is that it's more of a question of were people likely to understand that the speaker was trying to convey a message as opposed to were people likely to understand the speaker's message. And depending on 
basically, I think the court and the facts, you're going to see the emphasis in one direction or the other. But I think the correct test is, were, would people understand that he was trying to convey a message at all? Um, so for example, in Texas versus Johnson, the court said that uh, obviously burning a flag is protected speech. Um, but it, it, the court pointed out that we don't necessarily know in every instance what message exactly. burning the flag is intended to, to portray, but it's intended to portray a message, clearly. Um, and, and so turning back to, to this issue, you have this gentleman who's, you know, he's got these brochures and he's got his t-shirt with the Connecticut state constitution regarding the right to bear arms. And he's got a gun and a holster on his hip. You know, the question is, I mean, does he, is he just a guy who's both passionate about guns and happens to be carrying one right now um, for his own protection? And, and this is something that uh, Caitlin DeBoer, who came, who wrote a, a pretty similar article to mine in the Hastings Constitutional Law Review, uh, she pointed out that you just, you can't divorce the instrumentality of the gun uh, from from its carrying. You know, when people are carrying a gun, they are they are carrying a, a weapon, a tool, and you can't ignore that fact when you're looking at uh, someone who's claiming that they their possession of a weapon was expressive. Um, so, so you have that aspect, and then there was one other kind of similar aspect which is that the court has said, they've never necessarily rested an opinion on this, but the court has said that where expressive conduct is understandable primarily through reference to other supporting speech that is happening, that is where someone is getting a message or is understanding the intended message of some conduct, but they're understanding it through something else that's happening in the same area, then the expressive conduct test is not met. So the context of the, the expressive conduct matters. Like, is it happening, for example, at a rally for the Second Amendment? Right. I think that the example that my First Amendment professor uh, always used was, you have a bunch of people sitting around under signs that say, legalize marijuana. Um, and one of them starts smoking a joint. Mm -hmm. um, you know, maybe it's ex maybe they're intending to express a message, but if you took away the signs that say legalize marijuana, you just have someone smoking a joint in the park. Um, and so if, if you have to rely on signs or something else for people to understand your message, uh, then your conduct isn't, I, I don't, I guess it's not expressive enough. That's actually a great parallel because th the thing I'm struggling with here is that the carrying well, actually, maybe it's a little bit different because I'm, I'm just thinking about the marijuana example. In, in Virginia, for example, you can carry a weapon, uh, open and conceal carry a weapon, I, be I believe. Uh, the, and then the question becomes, um, you know, can the state regulate that right in the context of engaging in expressive activity? Um, but the marijuana example is different because um, smoking a joint use Virginia, for example, in public is illegal in the state of Virginia. But can that, can the state regulate it if it's in the course of expressive 
an ex- like a demonstration? I, I would say probably yes, or, or almost certainly yes. So you have you have um, two different you have pressures coming from different different sides in there. Um, right. But let's say that you're in California, you're smoking a, a joint legally in public, um, and you're then you're doing it in the course of expressive, uh, like a demonstration. Could the state regulate the smoking of that joint? Let's say if you're just doing it in the course of like a protest, because if you can do it in the in the context where you have a statutory right to the the conduct in any other context. Can the state then regulate it just because it's occurring in an expressive conduct context? It's an interesting question, and I hadn't thought about it that way before. Yeah, I think that you get into a little bit about the unique characteristics of guns once you once you get. Yeah, because then you you bring in this this last question, which is kind of the 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 thrust of your article, which is in the context of guns, you have sensitive places, and you argue that demonstrations are sensitive places uh, where the state must have or should have or could have uh, more authority to regulate things that might pose a danger to the people in the area, mm-hmm. right? And, and maybe with marijuana, you don't have that same danger, although you could argue, and I think the state might overcome the burden, uh, that secondhand smoke is a is a uh, is a danger, and it's in that context that they can regulate just smoking a cigarette, too. Mm-hmm. I, so my argument for sensitive places is actually a, a little different. There hasn't been necessarily a theory of, I guess, so for background context, the court in Heller, uh, in addition to stating what it viewed as the baseline gun right, which is, is about self-defense, and then it stated that, you know, whatever level of scrutiny you apply, uh, a prohibition on handgun ownership for self-defense in the home is constitutional. The court then said that this decision should not be read to out on and then provided a list of regulations that happen, just so happens to track almost exactly the list of, you know, federal gun regulations. Um, and among them, it said that their decision should not be read to doubt on prohibitions of guns in sensitive places like government buildings and schools. And it, obviously, that list is not exhaustive, and the court not exhaustive. Um, and that the sensitive places language captures a lot of gun regulations in the United States today. Um, and despite that, there hasn't really been a, a, a settled idea of what the court means by sensitive places and what else are sensitive places other than governments and schools. And so I argue that um, sensitive places, I don't, you know, I don't necessarily think the court meant it this way, but sensitive places makes a lot of sense if you talk about it in the context of places where the presence of guns will undermine First Amendment protected activity. And that's government buildings, that's schools, that's rallies and demonstrations, um, universities, uh, public parks, places like that. So I thought, and, and this is maybe where you and I might have a little bit of disagreement. Before you kind of present that argument, uh, you go through some of your student co- comments uh, or your reviewers' comments about what they thought might or might be or should be the doctrine for sensitive places uh, in this con- context. There was one student who I think recommended sort of like a time, place, and manner 
um, analysis, which is, of course is very common uh, just in the demonstration context uh, in First Amendment analysis. And then there was there was another student, Jordan Pratt, who um, also suggested something similar, but more of a traditional uh, forum analysis in determining uh, what a sensitive place might be. And, and, you know, to the extent that there are government buildings or there's government property where historically um, there's been a broad right to carry firearms, then perhaps the the right to carry a firearm in expressive or non-expressive activity should be allowed there. And um, I don't know what, whether national parks, for example, have been places where historically you can, you can carry weapons. But I, I know, for example, that there are some people who camp and like to have a weapon, but that, that doesn't look in with the expressive uh, concern that we have here. But your argument about how the marketplace of ideas is best served, I mean, if we're talking about First Amendment values and, and bringing a First Amendment analysis to bear on uh, those values and how they intersect with others, um, to the extent that that value is important, the presence of guns limits the exchange of ideas because it might induce fear on behalf of those who would otherwise participate right. in the democratic process. Now, my big critique of that, and I, I think it's the critique that most gun owners would have, is that it's the presence of guns by people lawfully carrying them that makes them feel safe in certain environments. Uh, for example, I know I have a lot of Jewish friends who now attend synagogue uh, with armed guards present. Uh, I There was that case in Texas a couple of weeks ago or maybe a month ago where a man came in with a assault style weapon, shot off once and then was immediately taken down by a security officer. Uh, and there were a number of other parishioners who had their guns trained on him. And, and a world where uh, I think and I don't have the statistic right in front of me, concealed carry weapon owners have a lower incidence of crime than even the police, I believe. Um, mm -hmm. People would argue, well, unless you have a complete ban on weapons, then the only people who have weapons who could bring them into these sensitive places would then be crim criminals and the disarmed public, uh, law-abiding public, would be at their mercy and perhaps you could argue less inclined to participate in first amendment protected activity like you know a church congregation yeah so that's interesting i think um i guess i would start out by uh, one of the i i guess my argument is is keyed a little bit to the idea of you think in a rally context for mm -hmm. example or a demonstration context the idea of there being a lot of guns concentrated in in a single place um, amongst these rally goers or amongst these people the idea that that has a distorting effect on the marketplace um, in that you know threats of violence historically are a relatively persuasive tool um, maybe not necessarily in the long term, uh, but certainly in the short term, threats of violence work. Mm -hmm. um, and so if, if we allow our political discourse to become one where the possession of a, or making your point through the barrel of a gun is, is acceptable, then that's going to distort the marketplace of ideas because 
it, it, it amounts to a subsidy, basically, if you, if you take the marketplace concept seriously, which I have, you know, I have general skepticism of, of the marketplace of ideas metaphor as it works, but if you take it seriously, uh, allowing the presence of guns at, to make political points at political demonstrations, for example, or um, at government buildings is troublesome because it encourages or incentivizes the use of carrying a weapon um, to make a political point mm -hmm. and to make a political argument. And, and my point is that these political debates are extremely important and extremely necessary to have, and that includes the political debate over, you know, the meaning of the Second Amendment and the appropriate level of gun possession in the country. And to make the political debate a, or the outcome of that debate a function of who has the weapons um, is a distortion of the marketplace of ideas, which doesn't lead to good outcomes. Now, when it comes to, for example, uh, armed guards in, in schools or synagogues or government buildings, I think that that's more of a question of empirics to me. I, mm -hmm. Does it work or does it not work? Um, and I think that there's some question about whether or not open open carry or, or concealed carry and whether or not broad public ownership works or doesn't work at stopping mass shootings or whether it makes things worse or doesn't make things worse. So those are empirical questions to me. Mm -hmm. I think that in terms of the effect on the First Amendment and on First Amendment interests, which are kind of paramount in our political system, that, you know, broad use of guns to make political points, to win debates, is, is what I'm focused on and what I find troubling. Yeah, one of the challenges, so baked into that argument is the idea that there are people who would be, so I, I think we can both agree that the, the firing of a weapon, if not done in self-defense, clear self-defense um, during one of these demonstrations sh can and should be outlawed. Uh, you can't shoot off guns in the air. Uh, you, um, but I think what you're arguing more or less is that the response by some people to seeing the guns would create fear and then might discourage them from speaking up, correct? Yeah, that's part of it. And, and that, that has a distorting effect on the debate. I think, uh, it also leads to questions about access to democracy. I think, for example, I don't know if you've seen the images from the past from Kentucky this yeah. past weekend, but uh, the certain people are allowed to walk into the Kentucky State House, you know, wearing masks and with uh, rifles, and and certain people aren't. Um, and that's troublesome too. Yeah, <laughs> just kind of a sidebar on that is I, I saw it reported somewhere. I don't know if it's true, but if you're coming into the Kentucky State House with a weapon, you don't have to go through the metal detectors. Uh, but if if you uh, aren't carrying a weapon, then you do. Uh, I, I I found that to be um, kind of funny, in a sense. But my my big concern about that sort of regulation on expression. Um, the ex regulation of expression based on the responses of people to that expression um, is that I don't like giving the government the power to determine what speech can be restricted based on someone's subjective reaction to that expression. So 
for example, going back to our earlier conversation on whether a message could be properly understood, I don't, I don't like the idea that someone has to understand my message in order for my message to be protected. Like, does it need to be super literal? Does it, you know, the clothing I'm wearing, for example, says something, it's expressive in a certain sense, might say something about me, but it does, what if that message is misinterpreted? What if people have different reactions to it? And you could, of course, throw in an objective standard in there, but do you really want an objective standard in, in analyzing um, speech or expression? I, I don't know. I, I think part of speech and expression in certain cases is that the message isn't clearly understood. Uh, but then, you know, also the worrying about other people being fearful of your message. I mean, civil rights demonstrators, you know, uh, marched through towns in the South and people in the, in the South were fearful of how that might change their, their, their towns. Um, and I, you know, I would argue, and I'm sure you would, that the, the message that those civil rights demonstrators were trying to send and the, the change that they were trying to inspire was good. Uh, but the whites in those towns were fearful of it. Um, so I, I'm always weary of giving the power, power to government to censor based on those sorts of subjective reactions. I don't know if that's a general um, sentiment of yours as well, but it's kind of changed by the unique instrumental, uh, instrumentation of guns. Yeah, I, I think, I think it's, that's, that's definitely part of it. Okay. So part of the reason why I think that this works as a theory of sensitive places for the Second Amendment is that it's a relatively object, objective question. Mm-hmm. Um, is this a, a place where the presence of guns could lead to essentially private censorship or a a distortion of the activity that is meant to take place in that area. Um, And and I think that that provides for a little more objectivity. Mm -hmm. I think that one of the points that I try to make here is that people wouldn't use, I mean, if, if you think that marketplace theory is correct, people wouldn't use guns to make political points unless it worked. Um, And if that's the case, then either everyone's going to have to start using guns to make their political points, or the ideas that need guns to win the debate in the marketplace of ideas are going to win out. Um, And I I think that either of those is not a good result from just from, you know, those, those are two of the results. The third possibility is that you know, the persuasive power of, of the threat of violence just disappears. Um, and I don't think that, you know, that's a, a, you know, a thing that we can place a lot of hope on. So I, I think that the first two things, either everyone's going to start needing guns or the ideas that need guns and can't win without guns start to win, um, neither of those are good possibilities. And so I think that the, the answer is to just let's have the political debates including the political debates about guns, uh, but we don't need the guns to make the points in the political debates. Mm. Yeah, I, you know, it's hard to put yourself in the, I've never protested with a gun. It's hard to put yourself in the, in the shoes of people who do, uh, whether it's done primarily to intimidate political opponents or to actually send a message and the, 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 the potential political intimidation isn't baked in there. Um, but interesting 
concepts to think, you know, I, yeah, I've been doing this podcast for over three and a half years, and I feel like I've talked about everything under the sun having to do with free speech and, and the First Amendment. Uh, and a lot of the doctrine is settled in the First Amendment. That's one of the reasons I like talking about campaign finance law, for example, is the more complex issues, especially where rights intersect with other rights, um, make for interesting discussions. And this is one that makes for very interesting discussion. I, I You have two other articles, though, so I want to move on to those. But um, if anyone else... If any of our listeners are interested in reading this one, it is online. I'll link it in the show notes, and it's called Leave Your Guns at Home, The Constitutionality of a Prohibition on Carrying Firearms at Political Demonstrations. One of the worst subtitles. <laughs> you need to have a subtitle, though, although your next article that we'll discuss doesn't have one. Yeah, so many uh, syllables. Yes, yeah. Uh, it needs to have a rhythm or a, uh, yeah. a rhythm to it. So uh, this one is Addiction and Expression. And this was an interesting article as well. It's kind of a novel approach on whether expression that can be addictive can be regulated under the First Amendment. So, okay, kind of as a background here, well, I'll let you explain the background. You've, you start by explaining the history, which is that things that are addictive have historically been regulated in America. So, like, what things? Right. So I talk a, a little bit about this. Um, Tobacco is tobacco and alcohol have both very unique political histories in America, and there's been, you know, probably trillions of words written about the political histories of alcohol and tobacco in America. But um, I do talk about regulations of addiction in American history, and so alcohol, for example. Uh, in the early 1800s, the United States was the drunkest country on earth, and we drank something like three times the modern rate uh, of alcohol. And um, less than a century later, uh, we passed prohibition. And what happened in that century was people came to believe in alcohol addiction. And uh, that was the motivating factor in prohibition was the deleterious effects of, that alcohol addiction had on families and on society. Um, and, and that's what led to prohibition, which was a prohibition on the manufacture and sale of alcohol. And, and then with tobacco, you have, again, I think the recognition that nicotine is addictive was a game changer. So you had uh, tobacco executives saying throughout the 20th century, including up to 2005, arguing that nicotine was not addictive, which was a lie. They knew that nicotine mm -hmm. was addictive uh, much earlier than that. But um, after kind of after Congress recognized and after they somewhat gave up on arguing that nicotine wasn't addictive, that's the first time that Congress grants the FDA the regulatory authority to prohibit the sale of tobacco in certain situations. Before that, it was almost entirely a, a controlled by congressional statute. Um, so those are two examples. And then the third is gambling, uh, which is kind of the most on-point example. Um, and gambling has a very interesting history. Um, uh, gambling was the first form, or lotteries, I guess, were the first form of taxation in the United States. They paid for UNC. Um, they paid for roads, they paid for government buildings. Uh, Thomas Jefferson called them taxation on the willing. Um, so they were really heavily favored, but at the same time, private gambling was restricted. 
since uh, the Mayflower landed. Mm -hmm. Private gambling has been restricted in the United States. And if you look at the, the reasoning that was given at that time, it was because people recognized that gambling was addictive. Before there was really a clinical understanding of what addiction was, people were talking about um, how gambling controlled people's minds and was irresistible. Um, and, and so the point that I try and make here is that the recognition that something is addictive or can be addictive really represents a fundamental game change in, in how we treat that activity, that substance, whatever it is, because we take addiction seriously. Yeah, and there's a history in America of regulating addiction, but in your article, you tackle it in the context of expression. There is some sort of expression that can be addictive as well, and if that expressive conduct or that expression is addicted, can you regulate it under the First Amendment, which I think is is very interesting, and you you focus on two, mostly one, but two areas. Uh, one area is pornography, uh, which has been found to be addic- addictive, um, and the other area is video games, in particular loot boxes. So, talk, explain what those are for our listeners. Sure. So, loot boxes are something that were invented in uh, 2005-2007, right around there, and uh, it is now 2020, and they are in 95-plus percent of of video games. And gamers hate them, hate them. Well, some do, because they they force you to spend more money. (laughs) Yeah, Um, so that's that's really the point. Um, (laughs) Gamers absolutely loathe them. They are... they're horrible. So um, I guess to give, <laughs> having passed judgment on them, I will now explain them. Uh-huh. Um, they loot boxes are essentially a purchasable lottery ticket or a purchasable gamble um, within the game, and and it can come through in-game currency or it can come through real-world currency, dollars and cents, or it can come through in-game currency that is purchased by real-world currency. Um, and so basically, you pay the video game, whatever it is. I think, for example, um, in this game, Apex Legends, there are like uh, a dollar each or something like that. Uh, you pay the game a dollar, and it sends you back a loot box. And then the loot box, you you click the button to open it, and it explodes in this brilliant, you know, kind of firework of confetti and noise and all this stuff, and you get some items out of it. it. It might be like a different color of armor for your character or a, a skin that goes on your gun or like a little whatever, you know, like a, a tag or something like that. Um, and so traditionally, the, the biggest resistance has been if you can purchase it with real money, it can't affect you, your, the quality of gameplay. It can't make you more competitive against other players. Um, but that's, that's, and I talk about this in the piece, that, that line is being pushed um, by developers almost continuously, despite the fact that gamers have repeatedly set these, these hard red lines. They just keep getting moved and moved and moved. And the reason that they keep getting moved and moved and moved is that loot boxes are addictive. They're gambling. And so despite the fact that um, everyone hates them, 
people still buy them. Yeah, the gamble is that you don't know what's going to come in that loot box. And there's something in the circuitry of our brain where things are un- where unpredictable things are addictive. Yes, and this has been it, it's in the circuitry of all animal brains basically. This is called the Skinner box experiment. He would have animals press a button to get a treat. And those who got a treat every time they pressed the button would keep doing it for a while. He'd stop giving them treats. They'd press the button a few more times, and then they'd give up. And then he had a different set of animals who he would give them a treat randomly when they pressed the button. So not every time, but at random intervals. And then he would cut off the treats. And the ones who were given treats randomly would continue pressing the button for hundreds of times. Um, and that's, that's what we're doing with loot boxes, basically. Um, and they are, as I said, there's something that has just infested, basically. It's hard to think of it as anything other than just this infestation um, throughout all of video games. Um, and so, yeah, my article is about, like, this stuff is intentionally addictive. I mean, the video game companies aren't being very good at hiding the fact that they are trying to make people addicted to their products. And, and so what should we do with that from a free speech perspective? Because video games are protected speech. Because the courts have ruled that code is speech or can be speech historically. Right. And in Brown versus um, I for Entertainment Board or something like that, I just think of it as Brown at this point. Dealing with violent video games, right? Yeah. Brown versus Entertainment Merchants Association. The court said um, it wasn't even litigated. Uh, the court says California correctly acknowledges that video games qualify for First Amendment protection. So if if code is speech and some code can be addictive, you know, I, I, I worry that focusing so narrowly on video games uh, is kind of impossible because there is a lot of code or expression that can be addictive. I mean, you, you kind of tip your hat to it in the article, but Facebook's algorithm for its newsfeed is addictive. Social media is addictive. Your, your telephone is addictive. Uh, television can be addictive. I mean, and they, they have psychology to keep you watching. For example, they put the, the big climax before the, or the, the almost climax right before the commercial. And you have to watch through the commercial in order to figure out what happens, you know, at, at jeopardy, for example, they'll go to commercial just before they reveal some sort of, um, big thing that you've kept watching for. So is, is regulating addictive expression pretty much opening the door to regulating television? Um, I, I know there have been complaints historically when radio first came out that kids would just sit in front of the radio instead of reading their books or doing their homework or playing with their friends. I'm just, I'm, I'm trying, I'm, I have a hard time determining where the limiting principle would be there because so much of successful expression or expression that people want to uh, engage with is because of the addictive nature of it. And addiction, of course, can sit on a spectrum. But I wanted to get your response to that. Yeah. I, and I, I'm fairly upfront, I think, in this article yeah. about this being the, the big challenge is that the things that make us addicted to video games or the things that are placed in video games intentionally to addict us are, um, you know, social scientists, what people have described as vectors of addiction include like advanced graphics and leveling up and um, 
social aspects of the video games um, and quests and missions and stuff like that where you get a reward at the end. Um, these are all things that make video games playable. Um, but they also, at, at a certain extreme, make them addictive. Um, and so that is the big kind of in, in deciding to whether or not you can regulate addictive expression is because you know, if you ban everything that's addictive about a video game, you're left with something unplayable. Um, so, so you're right that it, it is this kind of the central animating tension here. Um, and I talk about, you know, pop music on the radio. Um, you know, you have people complaining about how it sounds algorithmic. Um, that's because, you know, there are successful equations for putting out a successful pop song. Um, the same is true with Netflix shows. Um, they are, they have a list of things that make people binge watch these shows. Um, and, and so there are formulas. And that's something that uh, David Courtright talks about in his book that I quote called Age of Addiction. He says we're we're living in something he calls limpid capitalism, where essentially corporations are across the board, and his is much broader than mine. He talks about food, for example, um, mm -hmm. are increasingly relying on neuroscience and and brain chemistry to make their products addictive. Um, and so I think you're right that there is a concern about overregulation. Um, and and uh, you know under protecting things, um, but I, one of the ways that I address that is by saying that um, the speech needs to be intentionally addictive uh, to be taken out of the uh, the realm of protected speech. Um, so it should be, for example, loot boxes are uh, they serve two functions uh, to uh, addiction and to get money um, out of players. Um, and so where, where that's the case, those um, I think are, are safely taken out of the, the realm of protected expression. But still, I mean, most, most good expression is intended to be addictive. Like the, the television producer is intending to put the big um, event right before the commercial. So you watch afterwards. So does there have to be some sort of like pervasive nature of it or is like because the television program is only 30 minutes uh you don't have to worry about someone wasting their entire week watching the television program i think that i i see a little bit of a difference there i think that um what the television producer is doing in in that case is is yeah it's to make people stay through the commercial break but it's also you know, there's artistic purpose behind cliffhangers and stuff like that. We cliffhanger, that's the word I was looking for. <laughs> we, we recognize and enjoy that. Um, I think that, like I said, with loot boxes, for example, um, just a, a plague in, whose purpose is to, to exploit predictable, irrational uh, neuroscience, um, <laughs> predict predictable, irrational brain activity to cause people to give the developer more money. Yeah. And you kind of quote, you quote some people who have been hooked on these video games as saying, I don't want to, but I can't help it essentially. Right. Um, and so I guess the other thing I would say about that, that one of the things I find so fascinating about the first amendment generally is that 
um, the First Amendment, like the rest of the Constitution, is an exception to democracy and an, an exception to democratic lawmaking. And what's fascinating about the First Amendment is that it is an exception to democracy in large part to protect democracy. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, I my inclination is that I think we can, I don't want to say trust, but I think we can rely on democratic processes to distinguish between um, intentionally addictive, deleterious speech and speech that it causes something to be enjoyable and, and you know, may at certain extremes have addictive tendencies. But I think we're capable of kind of distinguishing between the two. So at the end of your article, you argue that regulation of addictive expression is permissible under the First Amendment, and you don't carve out a new exception for it. You try and place it within the incitement standard, correct? Mm-hmm. I, I do think, uh, I argue for treating it as a new exception. Oh, do you? Okay. Intentionally yeah. addictive speech. But I also argue that based on what the court has said in, in Stevens, that the exceptions need to have some sort of basis in history and tradition that addiction looks a lot like incitement. And, and that's how you get kind of uh, uh, an exception for addiction through the court's preferred process of using history and tradition. Yeah, and the court's, uh, I think what you're referencing in Stephen is is the court's reluctance to create any new exceptions to the First Amendment right, not already outlined. Uh, Stevens, of course, was the animal crush videos case. Um, and, and then in there, I, I forget who wrote the majority. Was that Kennedy? Forget. I can't remember. Right? Yeah, but the, the the opinion essentially said they were they didn't want to want to create a new exception for the First Amendment. Now, last question on this one because I know we're already at an hour, and I still want to take ten minutes if you have the time to talk about oh, yeah. your press article. But the last question on this one is: in your article, you talk about movement in Congress to ban loot boxes or to regulate video games, um, but that movement within Congress is would be targeted at those games which are marketed towards minors or right. children, correct? And so my question for you is, and you and you argue that that's kind of a fool's errand because minors will still have access to these video games or parents can buy it. For, I mean, anyone who was under 18 and saw an R-rated movie by themselves uh, you know, <laughs> knows how easy it is to gain access. And that's what the court said in Brown, too. That's one of the reasons the regulation in Brown got struck down was because you know, someone's dad could still just go buy the video game for them. Yeah. So in thinking about that, I wonder about the constitutionality of just outright bans mm-hmm. of loot boxes. And, and actually your faculty advisor, um, Joseph Blosher, if I'm pronouncing his last name correctly, I've only communicated with him over email, uh, but he has a whole article about the constitutionality of bans. Uh, and, right. you, you know, talking about the history of addiction in order to outright ban uh, alcohol, they had to pass a constitutional amendment. So I wonder about the ability to ban loot boxes, um, or addictive expression writ large, um, in that context. Can you, can you just have an outright ban that's not a more narrowly tailored regulation uh, without a constitutional amendment? So that's one of the interesting things to emerge from Brown is that there is a, 
Brown is based on under-inclusivity, which is kind of it's kind of a strange decision, and it's gotten a lot of critique, and it seems like the court has walked it back a little bit. But the decision in Brown was, Brown was about violent video games, and California banned the sale of them to minors. Um, and the decision in Brown was uh, written by Justice Scalia, who said that under-inclusivity enough was enough to defeat this legislation because California banned minors from purchasing violent video games, but they didn't ban them from purchasing violent books or from watching violent television shows or violent movies or anything like that. So uh, Justice Scalia read that as kind of singling out a disfavored speaker, uh, video game developers. Um, That's kind of a strange decision. Uh, You know, generally we want, and this is what Chief Justice Roberts said when walking that back um, a couple years later, which is that we want Congress to, or legislatures, to legislate with care here um, and, and to speak in very narrow kind of prohibitions where, where they're regulating speech especially. We want them to, to you know, be as narrow as possible, don't we? Um, and so I think that the what I do when I'm talking about this legislation, which is the prohibition, it's the PCAGA, and it's about banning loot boxes in children's video games. Um, what I do is I say, let's just look at a ban on loot boxes, period. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that passes strict scrutiny. Um, I think that it's a ban on loot boxes is is narrowly tailored. Um, it's, it's targeting a very specific subset of, of speech um, with a very specific intent behind it to cause people to spend money and to um, produce addiction. And uh, I think it serves a compelling interest. Um, the state has, an, and that's kind of where I tie in the history of addictive regulations is that the state has a compelling interest in making sure that in avoiding the consequences to society of addiction writ large. Um, and so with, with regard to just flat out bans, um, I haven't made it all the way through Professor Bloker's article, but I think that it, in, this, in this context, the question is either A, could a ban, could this ban satisfy strict scrutiny? And I think it would, and then B, my argument is it shouldn't have to um, because there's not really a good reason to protect intentionally addictive speech. I think the only reason that we would end up protecting it is kind of the concern you raised about an empirical question about whether we're able to draw the line properly. Yeah. Um, and that is that question in many ways is like the big question in First Amendment jurisprudence, right, is we can't really draw lines very well, so we're going to overprotect. I think that intentionally addictive speech, especially in this context, um, it's it's a line that we are, you know, capable of kind of figuring out. Well, that article is Addiction and Expression. It was in Hastings Constitutional Law Quarterly. I think the most recent issue, that's volume 47, number two of winter 2020. And I will link that, of course, in the show notes. I encourage all of our listeners to give it a read because it has uh, it goes deeper than just this superficial conversation we've had here. It also talks about pornography, um, 
banning pornography was a big conversation in the late 80s and early 90s, and it's uh, come up again. And uh, this article might inform you on how to think about some of those questions. But I want to take just 10 minutes here, because I know I've kept you longer than I promised I would keep you, to talk about an article which I won't be able to link to for our listeners, because it's not yet uh, up on the internet. It's still in a, a workshop form. But the article is called, tentatively, uh, in draft form, The Broken Branch, Capitalism, the Constitution, and the Press. And I'm glad you wrote this article, Luke, because uh, it's stuff that I've been thinking about a lot recently. And I, I was recently speaking at a high school in the D.C. area in which there were some uh, free press advocates on the panel. And they made the argument, essentially, that the press should be – the press clause of the First Amendment should be be given more robust consideration than it currently is. Right now, the courts have essentially not developed any doc much doctrine around it because most of what we would be considered press activity can be covered under the free speech clause of the First Amendment. But you you take the situation happening with the press today, which is to say that a lot of people are losing their jobs. You, you write that in the last 15 years, more than one-fifth of local newspapers, more than 1,800 newspapers have disappeared. You write that between 2008 and 2018, the five major news industries, newspaper, radio, broadcast, television, cable, and other information services shed 28,000 jobs or about 25% of industry employment. Um, I went to journalism school. Uh, makes me glad that I didn't end up becoming a journalist. <laughs> it seems like a very unstable profession right now. Uh, but you argue that this has a problem for democracy and that it can be addressed through the First Amendment. So if you want to bring us a little bit through the background of this article. Yeah. So I guess the background of the article is um, you have this, what you just described, happening in the news industry. Um, just, I, I think it's underappreciated what's happening. It is an utter collapse. Um, something like, for example, in, in 2000, uh, advertising made up 80% of newspaper revenue or news organization revenue with circulation being 20%. And that was kind of the standard through most of American history since the advertising uh, system developed in the, in the 19th century. And when you say circulation, you mean people who subscribe and pay a monthly? Subscriber fees yeah. are 20%. So it's 80-20 advertising subscribing. That's 2000, up until 2000. In 2015, so just 15 years later, uh, they're equal. Advertising is 50, circulation is 50. Um, and in 2018, uh, circulation is now like, I think it's like 60, 40 circulation to advertising, and it may even be more extreme. And it's not just because the press has gotten better at getting subscribers, it's because they're losing advertisers. Right, circulation has declined in that time. So that's what's happening. Advertising has disappeared. Um, and as a result of it, uh, basically advertising was uh, almost a direct subsidy of the news. Um, it, it's an intervention between the subscriber and the producer of the news, where the subscriber agrees to look at advertisements um, in order to pay less for the news. Um, so that the, the collapse of advertising has led to a complete economic collapse of the press. Um, and so I look at that and 
not a lot of, a lot of people are talking about that as an economic issue or as a crisis in journalism. Not a lot of people are talking about it as a constitutional issue. And I think it is a constitutional issue because the institutional press, you know, these, these organizations that produce quality journalism, and that includes, you know, reporting and commentary. The institutional press was a, the existence of that was a background assumption of the Constitution. The framers were explicitly clear over and over again, first of all, that press freedom was one of the most important rights in the Constitution, and they really liked newspapers. Um, I mean, they often hated the newspapers of the time, but they liked the idea of newspapers, and, and they viewed the existence of this institutional press to act as a check on, on government power and on private power um, as, a, as a precondition of a representative democracy. And uh, I think that just the, the collapse of the institutional press is a lot like if tomorrow there was no Senate. You know, how would the government function? Uh, if the Constitution looked exactly the same, you know, the government needed two-thirds of a Senate majority to, or the president needed two-thirds of a Senate majority to confirm somebody, but there was no Senate. You know, how would we function? And I think that's what's happening with the Well, the, you, you quote from Thomas Jefferson in the article who uh, famously said that he'd, if the choice was between a, a, a press and a government, he would choose the press. Uh, yeah, and I think we should take that literally. Like, yeah. <laughs> He well, goes, I mean, you, when you, of the time. oh yeah, I mean, I mean, they a lot of the writings at that time that were having the, the news industry journalism standards hadn't quite been fully developed. So you had it was a new medium. So you had people doing lots of different things, including there were lots of ad hominem attacks. I mean, the 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 fight between John Adams and Thomas Jefferson. If you want to read some of the, that fight and how it occurred in newspapers broadsheets. Um, I mean, they were, they were calling each other horrible, horrible names. Yep. Um, but at the same time, I do agree that I think it was a background assumption that there would be a functioning press as a check or a watchdog of government. Indeed, I mean, the debate over the Constitution happened in the press when you think about the Federalist right. and Anti-Federalist uh, papers. But you essentially argue if economic, if capitalism cannot support a free press and I think you're right in, in saying that at least is, so much of it for me is, is hard because I think journalism lost a golden opportunity in the 90s to prevent a situation like today happening. I think it was poor yeah. thinking. Like I think if most of the industry, and I don't know if there would have been antitrust considerations here, had went to a paywall uh, model in the 90s, then they might have survived because they would have conditioned people from the onset of the internet that right. they can't rest on advertisers or other people to pay for their news content. It would have valued it more. And you almost need everyone to do that because if there are a couple newspapers that are going to uh, not have a paywalled environment, people would flock to those perhaps. Or they, they, they should have developed like a micropayment system. And I know they're, uh, like Apple is working on this right now where you pay one clearinghouse to read a bunch of different newspapers and that, that clearinghouse apportions your monthly $9.99 to the newspapers based on, I don't know, viewership. I, I just think the business model could have been more thought out had people not had there not been status quo bias on behalf of the publishers. Yeah, thought, I, always thought the advertising. They all thought the internet was going to be a flash in the pan. 
Yeah. So, but I mean, let's take for granted for the course of the, for the sake of this discussion that the situation is bad for newspapers. There are some counties in America that don't even have a newspaper. So you have some county governments without any like institutionalized watchdog. Now there might be individual bloggers who watch this stuff and we might not categorize them as press, but let's take for, for granted in this case that the press is in decline and they haven't been very good at figuring out a business model that will help them survive. So the question then becomes, if this is baked into the constitution, it's an underlying assumption of the government, does the press clause create a proactive role for the government to come in and save them? Yeah. So I think that, yeah, to start at the top, I guess the argument I'm making is that there isn't really a, a market case for journalism. It's a, it's a public good um, through and through. And tons of positive externalities that, uh, and, and economists have studied this and quantified this really, tons of positive externalities that the news organization, and I don't want to focus just on newspapers because, you know, I don't know that there needs to be a, a world of print necessarily. But, um, the government, uh, so there's tons of positive externalities that the news organization can't capture, or at least there's not a good way for them to capture it. And so, um, so there's not a business model for journalism is my argument. And I think that I don't necessarily get into the, the doctrinal consequences of that in this paper. I'm more focused on arguing that it is a constitutional problem and I, I, as I say, at some point, somebody should do something about this. I think that if you were to take my idea of the press clause seriously, which my idea of the press clause is basically that it protects press freedom. Press freedom is about protecting or about check, scrutinizing and checking private and public power um, and uh, creating an, uh, an institution capa capable of meaningfully doing so that that requires more than just of what we think about as, as non-interference on the government's part. It, it requires meaningfully that institutions be able to exist. And that includes a, an economic way for them to exist. And so I think that once you get into doctrine, you know, my, my belief as a policy matter is that the government needs to fund journalism. My belief um, as, as a matter of, of press clause doctrine is that there's the potential if, if you accept my version of the press clause that certain things might be constitutional that we would think of as probably violating the free speech clause today. Um, so for example, uh, limits on, on consolidation and private ownership that undermine the independence of the newspaper from certain private power Right now, we have some ownership limits of the press, but that's based on the broadcasting capacity or the fact that they use the public airwaves. Yeah. So it's not as much of a constitutional problem. I think that if the press is about, if, if press freedom includes economic security, as I argue that it does, then that might mean that Congress is empowered to, or is not prohibited by the First Amendment from taking actions to shore up economic security as long as it doesn't undermine the independence and informative. But isn't that, isn't that kind of, wouldn't that be very unique 
in the Bill of Rights, or in particular the First Amendment. You conceptualize the First Amendment as a, as an enumeration of uh, negative rights, that is um, mm-hmm. prevention or, or restrictions on the government. We are free to do things and the government cannot. But your conceptualization of the press clause might require positive rights. That means proactive interference in the government, by the government, or uh I don't want to use a loaded word like interference, but proactive action by the government to secure a right, which it just isn't really how the First Amendment's conceptualized. Yeah, I, I, yeah, I think you're. I think you're right. I don't know that I'm necessarily strictly arguing for some kind of affirmative obligation on Congress's part to fund journalism. Although I think that's a that would be to me as long as you 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 know, put it in an endowment or something like that so that there's not the possibility of it being taken away. I think it would be an unambiguously good policy for Congress to do that. I'm I'm not necessarily arguing for that affirmative obligation. I think that you're right in saying that it, my argument does differ from the traditional kind of conception of the First Amendment as embodying negative rights, because I, I think it's less of a positive right than a structural guarantee of the Constitution that this institution exists and whatever it takes to make sure that institution exists it's for example like you know we need to build a building to put the senate in Um, something something like that Um, we need the institutional press to exist to have a functioning democracy Um, we're seeing the negative consequences uh, of, of the lack of, you know, a, a shared reality emerging from a strong institutional press. And I think that relatively aggressive interventions in the market are merited. So is there, is it possible? Well, so let's, let's start. I want to take this a little bit systematically. Two questions here, mm-hmm. or one question, and then I, I have another follow-up question based on your answer is, one of the reasons that the press clause, and you, you go through how the press clause ha- doesn't have a lot of jurisprudence backing it up because it's kind of been baked within the free speech clause. Uh, yeah, because the, the the Supreme Court doesn't want to recognize the press as an institution. Um, and I think for some very good reasons, uh, the idea being that to recognize it as an institution means to actually recognize the activity of news gathering and potential. And in order to do that almost functionally, you need to determine who journalists are. And by determining who journalists are, having the government do that, you almost need to create a licensing system to do that. And there's just skepticism based on like kind of the libertarian nature of our constitution of government licensing uh, protected activity. So it's hard to define what the press is. And there's a danger, I think, in doing so. Um, I, I don't know. What, what, I want to get your take on that first. Yeah, I think that the argument that I make is that the courts worry about creating a special class of, of journalists, for example. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I haven't seen it stated by the court in terms of a concern about, you know, creating a licensing system specifically. I've seen it more kind of on the other side as why do journalists get more rights? To speak than other people. Um, I think that that concern, I argue, is misplaced because this isn't about the free speech clause. There's a, there's a whole other clause of the Constitution, the press clause, that is about the press. Um, and I argue that the press clause, you know, based on the history of the revolution um, and what they were saying at the time, 
um, as well as just kind of a, a normative kind of analysis of First Amendment and making it all fit together, the press clause is about protecting the institutional press. And so the concern about singling out the press as a, as a matter of free speech doctrine, I think is, you know, very apt. You know, I, I don't think we should necessarily single out speakers. However, there is a whole other clause that is about the institutional press and was intended to have meaning. Well, it's not necessarily about institutional press. I mean, it just says, uh, you know, Congress shall make no law abridging the freedom of speech right. of the press. So it, it could be, I, I, I just wonder where like bloggers who have done a lot of good uh, in in reporting, especially, and you see this a lot in local context, filling the void of institutional press, bloggers reporting on the local goings on of, yeah. of their government. So I just, I would wonder, I, and perhaps it doesn't need to take a licensing format, but creating a, as the court loves to do, a three-pronged test for determining <laughs> what news gathering activity actually is, and then making that kind of the definition of the press. Yeah. So this is something, Sonia West has been kind of the leader in, in arguing for reawakening the press clause. And her argument is that the press clause, she views it differently than me. Her argument is that the press clause should include news gathering rights, because those are distinct from free speech rights. So for example, she would say you have a constitutional right to uh, be free from punishment, from refusing to come with a, a subpoena to reveal your sources. Um, and her argument is that it's not a problem to single out a narrow definition of journalists, members of the institutional press, because you always have the background of free, of very broad free speech rights that everyone has access to. Um, and so, for example, a protection uh, against criminal sanctions for refusing to reveal your sources is very helpful to the national security reporter at the Washington Post. It's useless to me as a blogger because I don't have any sources. Um, and, and so she argues that this background makes it not a problem. Um, I personally would treat bloggers as, as speakers as opposed to members of the institutional press. Obviously, there's going to be some institutional press organizations that run blogs and employ bloggers, and, and those will look more like journalists. But for example, I think Floyd Abrams has a pretty good play on Justice Stewart's famous, I know pornography when I see it statement. Mm -hmm. um, Floyd Abrams says, I don't think the court will have any problem identifying a journalist when they see one. Yeah, I just wonder if they like might have had a problem identifying Matt Drudge as a journalist when he reported on the Clinton affair, for example. Uh, it's a it's a it's a concern I have. But perhaps they could do. I kind of, kind of need to know the standard when I saw it, and and it's also the the way you kind of illuminate it. There is a different conception from other people who have been trying to abuse new meeting into the press clause, which is which is you say news gathering, or that one um, scholar says news gathering activity. When in, traditionally people have been trying to imbue new meaning into the press clause, I mean like publishing activity, because news gathering isn't necessary. I mean it's a prerequisite in a lot of journalism to publishing, but it's not actual publication because you might go through news gathering and not actually publish. Right. So that's another question I have, but I've got to run to a meeting, but I want to ask you one more question. Is there a way to conceptualize doctrinally um, the press clause in a way that doesn't create some sort of positive right? Which is to say, can it just require the government 
to clear the road from the press, not do something such as make all news gathering activity, for example, tax exempt uh, or, or allow for news gathering activity to be ta- tax exempt. And you do kind of see a lot of tax exempt news and nonprofit journalism now as a new model. And you also talk about how the government previously had allowed for postage stamps to be discounted for the press. That's something that I could kind of get behind, I think, in a more significant way than a, uh, you know, an, an affirmative requirement of the government to, right. I, I don't know. I'm, I'm just wrestling, but even then it's still, you still have to identify who is the press and, and that, you know, is like a threshold concern for me. Yeah. The, the question of who is the press has been, if you take the Supreme Court at its word, which I think you should because it's a sincere problem, mm-hmm. uh, that has been the sticking point in giving the press cause meaning, is we don't know who the press is, we don't want to draw that line because we're going to leave some people out who deserve to be in, and that's especially problematic in the context of the First Amendment. Um, so that's always going to be an issue for any anything that's attempting to give the press mm-hmm. cause unique meaning, I think. Um, there are conceptions of the press clause, of, of a renewed press clause that, in, that are based on negative rights. Um, again, Sonia West, her article, Reawakening the Press Clause, is, is about negative rights. Although there is, I don't know how you would conceptualize a, a more robust constitutional right of access mm-hmm. uh, to government meetings and government documents and information, uh, which a lot of press clause advocates support that's kind of on the line between a positive and a negative right. Um, but her, the news gathering rights that, that Sonia West identifies are primarily negative rights. Uh, similarly, Lyle Denniston has argued that the press clause means absolute autonomy for the press, period. Kind of in a, a Hugo Black type of no law means no law yeah. mode. Um, his, his argument is that, uh, for example, like labor laws, laws of general applicability cannot apply to the press. Um, Mm. It's just too important. It's the press. It needs total autonomy, a a sphere of absolute autonomy. Um, And so I, 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 my argument is that I don't think that either of those, in one sense, Denison would go farther than I would. I think that labor laws should apply to the press. Well, Lyle Denison, like the Supreme Court reporter? Long time, um, or was yeah, this? A, so. Yeah, he was like for fifty years covering the court. It's a law review article um, yeah. in which he argues it, but um, or it was like a lecture that was published in a law review, I think. Um, but I guess in in another sense, I I think that neither of those goes far enough, which is securing the existence of the institutional press as a as a integral part of the constitutional structure. Yeah. Um, and so if, if it disappears, that's a problem. And I don't see a way looking on the horizon uh, outside of government action that protects the press. Well, I don't see a way, a way to protect the press. I mean, 100% sure thing it's going to exist outside of some sort of government funding because you can clear the way as much as you want you can make it as cheap as possible to do news you can say we're not going to tax you to the extent you have circulation we're not going to make you pay for postage 
Mm-hmm. But there are just terrible business people out there who can run any institution into the ground, <laughs> you know? So, you know, there's I don't know that there's ever a guarantee, but to the extent you can just make it as easy as possible, the libertarian instinct in me says, okay, you know, just get the government out of, you know, clear the government out of the the press's way as much as you can, you know, kind of likes that. But I don't ever know that you could guarantee it outside of creating like a government institution like the BBC. And of course, there's always concerns about doing that as much as I enjoy the BBC. So right. anyway, you know, I've got to run to this meeting, Luke. <laughs> I appreciate you staying on the phone with me for almost an hour and a half. That article is The Broken Branch, Capitalism, the Constitution, and the Press. And uh, when it's published, please do let me know and I'll go back to this episode and link it in the show notes. But a lot to chew on here. And I, I really appreciate you coming on the show. Yeah, thank you for having me. It's been uh, a really great, illuminating discussion. Yeah, we'll try to do it again sometime soon. This podcast is hosted, recorded, and produced by me, Nico Perino, and edited by Aaron Reese. To learn more about So To Speak, you can follow us on Twitter at twitter.com slash free speech talk, or like us on Facebook at facebook.com slash so to speak podcast. Luke, I should also ask, um, do you have a personal website or something that we can uh, give viewers to... uh, find more of your work or listeners i should say um i don't think so okay well i'll just look search me on ssrn and all my papers are up there very good very good and his name is luke morgan uh but if you want to give us feedback or if you want if you for some reason can't find the articles you can email us at so to speak at the fire.org we take in questions too if you have one for a future show at 215-315-0100 And, of course, if you enjoyed this, please consider leaving us a review on Apple Podcasts or Google Play or wherever you get your podcasts, Stitch or whatnot. Uh, They help us attract new listeners to the show. And until next time, thank you again for listening.